Now, before I get into this particular case, I do want to issue a content warning for some of the material contained within this case. While the case doesn't go into the explicit details, the accused in this case is appealing convictions for child pornography, for possession of, and distribution thereof. Obviously, this can be a very difficult subject, and viewer discretion is advised. Take care of yourself, listeners. Hi there, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. I'm Zach, and today we're bringing you a bonus episode in collaboration with the Legal Writers Collective. Today we'll be covering the Ontario Court of Appeal case, The Queen and McSweeney. Court of Appeal of Ontario, between Her Majesty the Queen and Peter James McSweeney. On appeal from the conviction entered by Justice Mary Teresa E. Devlin of the Ontario Court of Justice on October 27, 2017. Per Chief Justice Strathy. The appellant appeals his convictions for possession of child pornography and distribution of child pornography contrary to sections 163.1 sub 4 and 163.1 sub 3 of the Criminal Code of Canada, Revised Statute of Canada 1985, Chapter C46. His trial was conducted exclusively as a charter application. He alleged that his rights under sections 7 and 10b of the charter were infringed with respect to statements that he made to police before and after his arrest and that the statements should be excluded pursuant to section 24.2. After the trial judge found those statements to be admissible, the defense conceded that the Crown could prove the charges based on his admissions and the court was invited to make a finding of guilt. The appellant submits that the trial judge erred in finding that he was not detained when he made his first statement and refusing to exclude both statements pursuant to section 24.2. For the reasons that follow, I would allow the appeal. 1. Background A. The Search As the circumstances of the appellant's statements are central to the analysis of whether his charter rights were breached, they require careful examination. In May 2016, Detective Constable Lockwood of the Internet Child Exploitation Unit, ICE, of Durham Regional Police received a report that certain images, identified as child pornography, had been uploaded to the social networking site Tumblr. Further investigation determined that the uploads originated from an internet account registered to a subscriber at an address in Whitby, Ontario. The appellant's wife was the subscriber. The address was occupied by the appellant, his wife, and their two teenage children. Police officers prepared a search warrant for the address to seize electronic storage devices, computers, and other devices capable of accessing the internet. The warrant was executed at approximately 6.03 a.m. on June 15, 2016. Nine police officers entered the house, including two from the Sexual Assault Unit, an identification officer, two officers from the E-Crimes Unit, three from the ICE Unit, and a patrol officer. Some of the officers were in police uniform and others wore vests, identifying them as police. The appellant's wife admitted the officers into the home after they knocked on the door. The appellant was upstairs in the shower and the children were still in bed. The appellant came downstairs shortly after police arrived. Detective Constable Lockwood showed him the warrant and let him read it. He then asked the appellant whether he knew why the police were at his house. The appellant denied knowing anything about child pornography. As the appellant continued to read through the warrant, 
Detective Constable Lockwood asked him whether he could direct him to a computer in the house that might have child pornography on it. The appellant replied, quote, I'm not saying anything until I get my thoughts together, end quote. Detective Constable Lockwood acknowledged that he did not address questions of this nature to the appellant's wife. He admitted that he did not have a, quote, good answer, end quote, for why he did not. In response to defense counsel's suggestions that both questions were designed to have the appellant incriminate himself, Detective Constable Lockwood acknowledged, quote, they can be very incriminating, yes, end quote. Within about 10 minutes of the police arriving, the family had been gathered in the living room. The operational plan for the search was to secure the scene to ensure that electronic equipment was no longer transmitting and to make areas containing electronics, quote, off-limits, end quote, to the family. Until that was done, the occupants would not be free to move about the home for fear they would potentially interfere with the search or destroy evidence. Detective Constable Lockwood explained to the family what would be taking place during the search. They were told they were not permitted to use their electronic devices, including cell phones. A police officer was stationed in the living room while this discussion took place and she remained there with the family throughout the search. The appellant's wife wrote down the officer's names and badge numbers. She asked whether she could go to the kitchen to use a landline to make a call, and Detective Constable Lockwood told her that she could. At approximately 6.29 a.m., Detective Constable Lockwood asked the appellant's wife to come to the front porch of the home to give an audio statement. She agreed to do so. The officer testified that the purpose of the interview was to determine who had access to the computers in the home, but he acknowledged that most of the discussion was taken up with questions from the appellant's wife. He described the interview as, quote, lighthearted, end quote, and acknowledged in cross-examination that the appellant's wife was, quote, never a suspect, end quote. At some point during the interview, the appellant's wife asked whether she could get the children ready for school and the officer permitted her to tell the children to do so. The appellant remained in the living room while his wife was questioned on the porch. The interview lasted approximately 20 minutes. At about 6.53 a.m., Detective Constable Lockwood asked the appellant to come to the porch to give a recorded statement. The officer acknowledged that he had not cautioned the appellant up to that point, nor did he caution the appellant before he took the statement or inform him of his right to counsel. He admitted that his failure to do so was a mistake because he considered the appellant a suspect. B. The First Statement after Detective Constable Lockwood explained the background leading up to the issuance of the warrant and that experts would be examining the family computers for images of child pornography, the interview continued. Lockwood, so you know, I talked with the appellant's wife and we kind of debated back and forth who could be responsible for this. The appellant, okay. Lockwood, is there anything you'd like to talk about? The appellant, I'm not sure what to say at this point. Lockwood, well, Peter, I want to be, I'll be honest, I think it was you, man. The appellant, okay. Lockwood, because it wasn't your kids. The appellant, true. Lockwood, okay, kids can stumble into. The appellant, inaudible. The appellant, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say anything until I talk to people that could either help me or not help me. Lockwood, you're talking about a lawyer. The appellant, sure, um, but when you're going to say, well, you're not under arrest anyways, so inaudible. Lockwood, everything you have to say is voluntary. I'm not here to make you talk about anything you don't want to talk about, okay? The appellant, um, so what's the easiest course of action? Lockwood, I not, I can't even tell you what the easiest course of action is. I'm here to give you a chance to tell me everything I should know. The appellant, yeah, okay. Lockwood, um, anything you feel I should take into account in you, 
If you think there's someone in the house I should be questioning, I want you to tell me. The appellant, no. Lockwood, okay. The appellant, I think we're, uh, I think we're, uh, I, we're, I, we both know that it, it's myself. Lockwood, okay. So, what I want to do. The appellant, inaudible, you know. Lockwood, so what I want to do is this, okay? I appreciate that honesty. The appellant, right. Lockwood, okay, I don't want you to say anything else to incriminate yourself. Moments later, the officer said, quote, I do appreciate your honesty because I don't want to drag your kids into this, end quote. After the interview, the appellant was arrested, cautioned, and informed of his right to counsel and taken to the police station. C. The second statement. After being processed at the station, the appellant was taken to an interview room at approximately 10-11 a.m. He indicated that he wished to speak to duty counsel and arrangements were made for him to do so. After the appellant had spoken to duty counsel, the recorded interview continued at approximately 11.10 a.m. At the outset of the interview, Detective Constable Lockwood gave a secondary caution, followed by an awkward and inaccurate attempt at explaining it. Lockwood, got it, inaudible, you know because I haven't been with you the whole time. If you spoke to a police officer or anyone with authority or any special person spoken to you in connection with this case, I want it clearly understood that I do not want it to influence you in making any statements. Do you understand that? The appellant, mm-hmm, head nod, yes. Lockwood, so that means what another police officer told you, you better talk to Jeff Lockwood, uh, they're wrong. They're not supposed to do that, okay? Everything we say is voluntary. Um, sometimes we come in here and we just have long chats. Sometimes we come in here and just have questions about where do we go from here. And either way, I'm fine with that. Um, I don't play mind games and I don't trick anybody. I've been around too long to do that now and I'm just tired, okay? Throughout most of the interview, the appellant maintained that he wished to remain silent. However, at one point in the interview, Detective Constable Lockwood asked the appellant whether there was, quote, any chance that anybody else in the house is involved, end quote. To which the appellant replied, quote, absolutely not, end quote. 2. Reasons on Charter Application the trial judge found that both statements were admissible. She found that the appellant was not detained during the search of his home. Her reasons on the issue of detention were contained almost exclusively in paragraph 8 of her reasons. In the case before me, there is no evidence that Mr. McSweeney was physically restrained. There was also no evidence of psychological detention. Not only was Mr. McSweeney free to come and go during the search, he was present when his wife asked to use the landline telephone and get the children ready for school, and these requests were granted. In reaching the conclusion that Mr. McSweeney was not detained, I have rejected the submission that because an officer remained in the living room with the family, Mr. McSweeney felt that he was under police guard and was not free to leave. There was no evidence to support the submission. Also, Mr. McSweeney never asked to leave the living room, even though he saw his wife and children leave and go about their daily business. The trial judge observed that while Detective Constable Lockwood admitted that he should have cautioned the appellant before interviewing him on the porch, he was not legally obligated to do so, and the existence of a caution was only one of the factors to be considered in determining whether the statement was voluntary. Moreover, despite the absence of a caution, the appellant appeared to be well aware of his right to remain silent. The defense submitted that when the appellant made the comment about talking to, quote, people that could either help me or not help me, end quote, and Detective Constable Lockwood confirmed that he was referring to a lawyer, the officer was under a duty to inform him of his right to counsel and to facilitate his request. 
The trial judge rejected this submission, finding that 1. The appellant was not detained when he made the comment. 2. He did not actually ask to speak to a lawyer, but simply confirmed his wish to remain silent until he spoke to one. And 3. He did not further pursue the issue. The trial judge thus found that the appellant's 10B rights were not engaged, that the police did not improperly elicit his confession during the statement on the porch, and that the statement was both charter-compliant and admissible. The trial judge also found that since the first statement was charter-compliant and voluntary, there was no basis to find that it quoted, tainted, end quote, the second statement. 3. Issues This appeal raises four issues. First, whether the appellant was detained at the time of his first statement, thereby triggering his Section 10b right to be informed of his right to retain and instruct counsel without delay. Second, whether the appellant's second statement was obtained in a manner that infringed a Section 10b right. Third, if either or both statements were obtained in a manner that infringed the appellant's charter rights, whether they should be excluded pursuant to Section 24.2. And fourth, if the Section 10b issues were decided in favor of the Crown, whether the appellant's first statement should nevertheless have been excluded as involuntary and infringing Section 7. 4. Analysis A. Was the appellant detained at the time of the first statement? 1. Section 10b Section 10b of the Charter provides that everyone has the right on arrest or detention, b. to retain and instruct counsel without delay and to be informed of that right. The Section 10b right attaches immediately on detention, subject to concerns for officer safety. It creates the right to retain and instruct counsel without delay and the right to be informed of that right in order to effectively exercise it. A detained person who chooses to exercise their right must be given a reasonable opportunity to do so, and the police must refrain from eliciting incriminating evidence from the detained person until he or she had a reasonable opportunity to consult with counsel. See the Queen in McGuffey, the Queen in Subaru, and the Queen in Taylor. In Subaru, at paragraph 40, the court explains, The purpose of Section 10b is to ensure that individuals know of the right to counsel and have access to it. In situations where they suffer a significant deprivation of liberty due to state coercion, which leaves them vulnerable to the exercise of state power and in a position of legal jeopardy. Specifically, the right to counsel is meant to assist detainees regain their ability and guard against the risk of involuntary self-incrimination. An individual's Section 10b right is thus intimately connected to their control over their own person. While an individual confronted by the authority of the state ordinarily has the option to simply walk away, this choice can be removed by physical or psychological compulsion, resulting in detention. Once detained, however, quote, the individual's choice whether to speak to authorities remains and is protected by the Section 10 informational requirements and the Section 7 right to silence, end quote, the Queen and Grant. The Supreme Court of Canada expanded on this interaction between sections 7, 9, and 10 of the Charter at paragraph 22 of Grant. Detention also identifies the point at which rights subsidiary to detention, such as the right to counsel, are triggered. These rights are engaged by the vulnerable position of the person who has been taken into the effective control of the state authorities. They are principally concerned with addressing the imbalance of power between the state and the person under its control. More specifically, they are designed to ensure that the person whose liberty has been curtailed retains an informed and effective choice whether to speak to state authorities consistent with the overarching principle against self-incrimination. 
they also ensure that the person who is under the control of the state be afforded the opportunity to seek legal advice in order to assist in regaining his or her liberty. The key task, therefore, in determining whether an individual's Section 10b rights have been triggered is to identify whether a detention has occurred. Detention can be physical or psychological. Psychological detention occurs where a person has a legal obligation to comply with police direction, or where, quote, the police conduct would cause a reasonable person to conclude that he or she was not free to go and had to comply with the police direction or demand, end quote. Grant at paragraphs 30 to 31. In determining whether someone has been psychologically detained, the inquiry is an objective one, having regard to how a reasonable person would perceive the state conduct in the circumstances. An objective inquiry recognizes the need for police themselves to appreciate when detention occurs so they can fulfill their charter obligations to detained persons. See Grant at paragraphs 31 and 32 and Subaru at paragraph 22. The Supreme Court provided a helpful summary of the analysis of detention at paragraph 44 of Grant. In summary, we conclude as follows. Detention under sections 9 and 10 of the Charter refers to a suspension of the individual's liberty interest by a significant physical or psychological restraint. Psychological detention is established either where the individual has a legal obligation to comply with the restrictive request or demand, or a reasonable person would conclude by reason of the state conduct that he or she had no choice but to comply. In cases where there is no physical restraint or legal obligation, it may not be clear whether a person has been detained. To determine whether the reasonable person in the individual circumstances would conclude that he or she had been deprived by the state of the liberty of choice, the court may consider, inter alia, the following factors. A. The circumstances giving rise to the encounter as they would reasonably be perceived by the individual, whether the police were providing general assistance, maintaining general order, making general inquiries regarding a particular occurrence, or singling out the individual for focused investigation. The nature of the police conduct, including the language used, the use of physical contact, the place where the interaction occurred, and the presence of others, and the duration of the encounter. C. The particular characteristics or circumstances of the individual were relevant, including age, physical stature, minority status, and level of sophistication. I accept the appellant's submission that the trial judge erred in failing to apply the objective test mandated by Grant and Subaru. Namely, whether a reasonable person in the appellant's circumstances would conclude by reason of the state conduct that he or she had no choice but to comply. While the trial judge referred to Grant and Subaru, her analysis reflects the error that this court identified in the Queen and Wong. She treated the exercise largely as a subjective inquiry, asking whether there was any evidence of the appellant's state of mind. This was an error of law, and this court is therefore required to apply the correct analysis. Detention in the context of the execution of a search warrant in a home. This case is argued, in this court and in the court below, as one in which the appellant was detained not as a result of a legal obligation to comply with a state request or demand, but as a case where a reasonable person would conclude that they had to comply. The grant factors must therefore be applied. Before doing so, however, it is necessary to consider the fact the encounter occurred in the exercise of the state's authority through the lawful execution of a search warrant. There is no question that during the execution of a search warrant, police are entitled to segregate the occupants of the premises to ensure officer safety, to prevent the loss or destruction of evidence, and to maintain the integrity of the search. 
they may be given appropriate directions to that end. See the Queen and Connor, Ahmed et al. and McCaskill, Water and the Toronto Police Services Board. However, there are limits to these powers. I accept as accurate the observation in the Queen and Owen at paragraph 33. However, once the police have, quote, cleared, end quote, the house and ensured that they have accounted for all the occupants, they must have a basis for any continued attention of any occupants. They are not permitted to simply keep the occupants in a room, incommunicado, while they go about their search of the house. Once police have ensured their safety, they are not justified in holding the occupants in a room unless the occupants are being arrested or otherwise being lawfully detained. Provided the occupants are not interfering with the search, they are permitted to stay in and move about the residence, or they may leave. Owen itself bears some similarity to this case. Police arrived at the accused home just after 7am. They knocked on the door and were greeted by his father. The police informed the father that they had a search warrant regarding child pornography and asked him to move into the living room. The accused was upstairs in his bedroom. The police brought him down to the living room. The accused and his father were seated in the living room for several minutes. An officer stayed with them. The police then called the accused into the kitchen for questioning. During the interview, the accused made several inculpatory statements and was arrested shortly afterwards. The accused argued that he was psychologically detained when he was escorted from his room and quote sequestered end quote in the living room with his father and then directed to go into the kitchen to speak to an officer. The trial judge agreed, holding that the accused was quote subject to a psychological detention from the time the police escorted him downstairs and had him sit in the living room end quote at paragraph 32. The judge held that any reasonable person in the circumstances of the accused would conclude that they were detained. Further, even if there was no detention while the accused was placed in the living room, there was a detention when he was asked to speak with an officer in the kitchen. Other cases have followed a similar approach, see the Queen and Munko. However, where police have acted solely to ensure the integrity of the search, where the interference with liberty was modest, and where any questioning was not focused on the person's involvement in a crime, courts have found no detention. See Munko, Water, and the Queen in SL. 3. Application to this case The first consideration under the grant test is the circumstances giving rise to the encounter. As outlined above, in the context of the execution of the search warrant, a key consideration is whether the police were acting solely to ensure the integrity of the search, or whether they engaged in a focused investigation. In this case, the appellant was clearly singled out for focused investigation. From the very outset of the encounter, Detective Constable Lockwood posed questions that were accusatory and invited self-incrimination. In substance, his questions amounted to, quote, do you know why we are here, end quote, end quote. Can you tell us the location of computers in this house with child pornography on them, end quote. Those questions would cause a reasonable person in the position of the appellant to conclude that they were a suspect, perhaps the prime suspect, in a police investigation into child pornography in their own home. As was the case in Owen, the police were not merely executing the search warrant, they were targeting and questioning a suspect. The segregation of the family in one area of the home, without the use of phones and electronic devices, is also a circumstance to be taken into account. While the police were justified in clearing the house to ensure the integrity of the search, the prolonged sequestering of the family in the living room was unnecessary for that purpose. There was no suggestion that they attempted to interfere with the search or were anything other than cooperative. 
The fact that the appellant's wife found it necessary to ask for permission to use the landline in the kitchen speaks to a perception that she was not free to do so without permission. The same is true of her request to allow her children to get ready for school. While his wife was being interviewed outside on the porch, the appellant was left sitting in the living room with his children, with a police officer continuing to stand guard over them. His isolation and separation from his wife, whom the police had treated more deferentially than he, would add to the perception of a reasonable person that an investigation was taking place and that they were a suspect. Detective Constable Lockwood then asked the appellant to come out on the porch to speak to him and give a recorded statement. This would enhance their perception of a reasonable person in the circumstances that they were the focus of an investigation. The second factor under Grant is the nature of the police conduct, including the language used, the use of physical contact, and the place where the interaction occurred, the presence of others, and the duration of the encounter. Physical contact does not feature in the detention analysis in this case. However, as already identified, the language used by Detective Constable Lockwood after police entered the house was targeted and accusatory. It is noteworthy that the warrant was executed at 6.03am when most people are just waking up and when working people with children are getting ready for their busy day. This element takes on a particular flavor when one considers the presence of some nine police officers executing the warrant in what appears to have been a typical middle-class home. This would cause a reasonable person to feel the weight of the state in their home, the most private of places. The encounter itself, up to the time when the appellant was invited to give a statement on the porch, lasted approximately 40 minutes. It is not clear when the police had secured the area they needed to secure, but there is no evidence of why it was necessary for the appellant to remain in the living room for that length of time. Nor is there evidence as to why the police did not tell the appellant that he could leave or get ready for work if he wished to do so. The final grant factor to be considered is the particular characteristics of the individual were irrelevant, including age, physical stature, minority status, and level of sophistication. There are no characteristics of the appellant that are particularly germane to this inquiry. The appellant appears to have been a mature, educated, and articulate adult with some appreciation of his rights in the face of the officer's inquiries. 4. Conclusion on Detention in Section 10b I conclude that the appellant was detained, at the very least, at approximately 6.53am when Detective Constable Lockwood asked him to come to the porch to give a statement. Given all that had taken place during the preceding 50 minutes, including the focus and accusatory statements made to the appellant, the lengthy period of sequestration, under guard, and the officer's request to come to another area of the home to make a recorded statement, a reasonable person in the appellant's situation would conclude that they were obliged to comply. At no time before his arrest was the appellant informed of his right to counsel, even though Detective Constable Lockwood knew that he was required to do so. The appellant's Section 10b right was infringed. Now I turn to the question of whether the appellant's second statement should also be excluded as a result of having been tainted by the charter breach in relation to the first. b. Was the appellant's second statement made after he had spoken to counsel and been cautioned, obtained in a manner that infringed a charter right. In determining whether a statement should be excluded under Section 24.2, a court must answer two questions. The first, referred to by Justice of Appeals Doherty in the Queen and Plaha as a quote, threshold requirement, end quote, asks whether the statement was quote, obtained in a manner, end quote, that infringed or denied a charter right. 
where this threshold requirement has been met, the court proceeds to the second question, the quote, evaluative component, end quote, which asks whether the admission of the statement as evidence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. As explained by the Supreme Court and the Queen and Whitwer, in order to determine whether a subsequent statement by an accused was obtained in a manner that infringed a charter right, an accused must assess whether the impugned statement is part of the same transaction or course of conduct as the earlier breach. In considering whether a statement is tainted by an earlier charter breach, the courts have adopted a propulsive and generous approach. It is unnecessary to establish a strict causal relationship between the breach and the subsequent statement. The statement will be tainted if the breach in the impugned statement can be said to be part of the same transaction or course of conduct. The requirement connection between the breach and the subsequent statement may be, quote, temporal, contextual, causal, or a combination of the three, end quote. A connection that is merely remote or tenuous will not suffice. In undertaking this analysis, the court must be alive to whether the police were able to, quote, sever it, end quote, the connection and establish a, quote, fresh start, end quote. The trial judge in this case did not apply this analysis, as she found there was no charter breach in relation to the first statement. She also found that the two statements were unconnected to each other, as the second statement was made after a, quote, fresh start, end quote, as described in Menchunkel and Co. She accordingly held that the statement was voluntary. She also found that the two statements were unconnected to each other, as the second statement was made after a, quote, fresh start, end quote, as described in Manchulenko. She accordingly held that the second statement was voluntary. Having found a charter breach in relation to the first statement, I would also find that there was a temporal, contextual, and causal nexus between the first and second statements. The statements were relatively close in time to one another. About four hours elapsed between the end of the first statement in the appellant's home and the beginning of the second statement at the police station. In the meantime, the appellant went through what must have been a head-spinning and stressful process of arrest, transportation to the police station, parading and processing at the station, waiting, and consulting with duty counsel. In the context of this case, the passage of time was not sufficient to sever the link between the two statements. The statements were also linked contextually. At the end of the first statement, Detective Constable Lockwood told the appellant that the questioning would continue at the station, quote, when I come back to the station, I like to sit down and chat with you, but that, talk to your lawyer first, okay, end quote. While the appellant did speak to counsel, Detective Constable Lockwood was the only person present at the second interview. The officer's presence served to connect the two statements. This connection was confirmed by the officer's own words. At the beginning of the recorded statement at the second interview, Detective Constable Lockwood stated, in the appellant's presence, quote, Detective Constable Lockwood interviewing Peter McSweeney, a continuation of an earlier statement which was cut short because the accused wished to talk to duty counsel, end quote. The statements were also contextually linked by virtue of the officer's conduct. During the second interview, Detective Constable Lockwood continued to employ the same investigative techniques that he used in the first interview. One technique was to gain the appellant's trust by being considerate of his well-being. For example, after taking the first statement, the officer told the appellant that he would not arrest him in front of his children, suggesting he put on warm clothing because the cells were cold and made sure his blood pressure pills were with him. Quote, I like to be prepared for the worst and hope for the best, end quote, he said to the appellant. He reassured the appellant by telling him that there were, quote, a lot of reasons, end quote, why people view child pornography and that did not make them pedophiles. 
This concern for the appellant continued at the police station where DC Lockwood asked whether he had been treated well and whether he had any injuries. Quote, none from the handcuffs or anything? You were cuffed up front, so it's a lot more comfortable than sitting on those things. Trust me. End quote. He also asked whether anyone had called the appellant's workplace to let them know that he would not be in. The appellant said he had not called in, and DC Lockwood said, quote, Okay, we'll just let them sit for a while then, because I'm, I'm not going to phone them and get them suspicious. Uh, not saying they won't find out, it just, it won't be from me, end quote. While the officer's solicitousness may have been genuine, and while he may have had a legitimate reason to ask whether the appellant had received injuries at the jail, the officer's statement had the effect of re-establishing the friendly and accommodating atmosphere he had created after obtaining the first statement. There was, however, another more calculated aspect of the questioning that was common to both statements. In both interviews, the officer used the implicit threat that if the appellant was not forthright, he would have to interview his children. During the first statement, a few moments before the appellant blurted out, quote, we both know that it's myself, end quote, the officer said, quote, I'll be honest, I think it was you, man, because it wasn't your kids, end quote. The appellant replied, quote, true, end quote. Moments later, the officer said, quote, Okay, I do appreciate your honesty because I don't want to drag your kids into this. End quote. The clear inference was, quote, If you don't cooperate with me, I am going to have to interview your kids and tell them about the child pornography we found on the computers in your home. End quote. For most of the second interview, after he spoke to duty counsel, the appellant was uncommunicative. His only inculpatory statement was made after Detective Constable Lockwood again asked whether his family might have been involved. Lockwood, quote, is there, is there any chance that anyone else in the house is involved, end quote. The appellant, quote, absolutely not, end quote. Officer Lockwood had already had a confession from the appellant. He had never suspected the appellant's wife, and the appellant had said that if it was him, not his children. The officer was plainly using the appellant's desire to shield his children from the details of the offense to extract more information from him. In this sense, there was also a causal nexus between the first and second statements. In my view, informing the appellant of his rights and providing access to duty counsel did not serve to remove the taint of the initial charter infringement or to sever the nexus between the two statements. The presence of the officer who was responsible for that breach and who had taken the first statement a few hours earlier, the reference to the earlier statement and the use of the same interview techniques created a situation in which both interviews can be reasonably described as, quote, all part of the same interrogation process, end quote. See the Queen and Lewis. For these reasons, the second statement was, quote, obtained in a manner, end quote, that infringed the appellant's charter rights. C. Should the evidence be excluded under Section 24, Sub 2? Section 24.2 of the Charter provides where, in proceedings under subsection 1, a court concludes that the evidence was obtained in a manner that infringed or denied any rights or freedoms guaranteed by this Charter, the evidence shall be excluded if it is established that, having regard to all the circumstances, the admission of it in the proceedings would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. As matters transpired in the court below, it was not necessary for the trial judge to conduct a Section 24-2 analysis because she found there was no violation of the appellant's charter rights. As I have found there was such a violation, it is necessary to do that analysis. See the Queen in Caputo. The Section 24-2 analysis looks at the effect of admitting the evidence on public confidence in the administration of justice in the long term, having regard to 1. the seriousness of the charter infringing state conduct. 
two, the impact of the breach on the charter protected interests of the accused, and three, society's interest in the adjudication of the case on its merits. See the Queen and Grant, the Queen and Harrison. I now turn to these considerations. 1. The seriousness of the charter infringing state conduct. The stage of analysis requires that I situate the police conduct on a continuum of misconduct, see the Queen and Blake. In Grant, at paragraph 74, the Supreme Court spoke of a spectrum between inadvertent or minor charter violations on the one hand and violations involving the willful or reckless disregard for charter rights on the other. The more serious the infringement by the state authorities, the more likely it is to, quote, have a negative effect on the public confidence in the rule of law and risk bringing the administration of justice into disrepute at paragraph 74, end quote. In my view, the charter infringement in this case was very serious and amounts to willful disregard of the appellant's charter rights. The officer acknowledged that the appellant was a suspect from the outset and that he should have cautioned him. Instead, he pursued a tactical and focused interrogation. He ignored the appellant's statements that he did not want to say anything and he wanted to, quote, talk to people that could either help him or not help him, end quote. The officer clearly understood that the appellant wanted to speak to a lawyer. As Justice of Appeals, Jalees observed in Hamilton at paragraph 71, quote, the police obligation to hold off questioning detainees who have requested a consultation with counsel is firmly established law of long standing, end quote. However, instead of holding off and allowing the appellant an opportunity to consult counsel, the officer persisted in his questioning. The willful disregard of the appellant's rights weighs heavily towards exclusion of the fruits of the interrogation. 2. The Impact of the Breach on the Charter-Protected Interests of the Accused The impact of the breach was serious. The appellant was detained and, quote, at the mercy of state actors, end quote. See the Queen and Nugent at paragraph 21. Section 10b protects the detainee's rights to make an informed choice about whether to cooperate with the investigation by giving a statement. See the Queen and Sinclair. The actions of the police deprived him of that right. 3. Society's interest in the adjudication on the merits This inquiry asks whether the truth-seeking function of the criminal trial process is better served by the admission of the evidence or by its exclusion. It considers both the negative effect of the admission of the evidence on the repute of the administration of justice and the impact of a failure to admit the evidence. In McGuffey, this court observed, at paragraph 62, that the pull toward the inclusion of the evidence is particularly strong where the evidence is reliable and critical to the Crown's case. On the other hand, where the first and second inquiries make a strong case for exclusion, the third inquiry will seldom, if ever, tip the balance in favor of admissibility. In this case, the evidence is reliable, but it is not critical to the Crown's case. The Crown has circumstantial evidence regarding the possession and use of the computers. This may be enough to proceed with the charges. See the Queen and Taylor, the Queen and Erskine, and the Queen and Villoramon. 4. Conclusion on Section 24.2 The state conduct was willful and in disregard of the appellant's asserted charter rights. It had a serious impact on those rights and on his attempt to exercise them. While society has a strong interest in the adjudication of the charges on their merits, the exclusion of the evidence will not preclude the Crown from proceeding with the charges. If it chooses to do so, relying on forensic evidence obtained from the computers themselves. 
This is not a case in which the Crown's case will be gutted by the exclusion of the improperly obtained evidence. It may be more challenging to prove, but it has not been suggested that it would be impossible. For these reasons, the appellant's statements should be excluded pursuant to Section 24.2. D. Voluntariness as I have concluded that both statements resulted from breaches of Section 10b and should be excluded pursuant to Section 24.2, it is unnecessary to consider the trial judge's conclusions on voluntariness. Part 5. Conclusion For these reasons, I would allow the appeal, quash the appellate's convictions, and order a new trial. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at LegalListening.com. We'll talk to you next time.